Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Every year on June 19th, communities across the U.S. celebrate Juneteenth, a holiday that commemorates the end of slavery in America. This week, we bring you an episode that first aired five years ago, our visit to the Whitney Plantation the only plantation museum in Louisiana that focuses entirely on slavery. Founded in 2014 by New Orleans developer John Cummings, the site presents slavery from the perspective of the people who were forced to cultivate sugar and rice there from 1752 to 1865. It also serves as a memorial to the people enslaved throughout the antebellum South. We'll hear from John about what inspired him to invest millions of dollars into the project. And then, in-residence research director, Dr. Ibrahima Sek, personally gives us a tour of the property. Finally, educator and activist Sybil Morial, who was once New Orleans' first lady, tells the story of discovering her own family ties to the Haydells of Whitney Plantation. We're taking a look at the reality of plantation life for enslaved people on this week's Louisiana Eats. The vision for the Whitney Slavery Museum originated with one man, John Cummings. With social responsibility on his mind and the research direction of Professor Ibrahim Asek by his side, John invested $10 million of his own money, creating the first plantation museum dedicated to memorializing the truths of slavery. John spoke with us about how this momentous project began. I'm John Cummings, and I'm, I'm native-born New Orleanian, and uh, I'm an attorney of offices here in Philadelphia and Seattle, and did well. I'm retired now. And Whatever Uncle Sam and the bartender let me keep, I invested in real estate, and I bought the Whitney Plantation as a real estate investment. It came with eight volumes of a study. The architectural uh, part of it was very interesting, but what really changed my life was when I got to the section on successions and the passage of ownership from one to the other. And for the first time in my life, I realized that the story of slavery had not been included in my education. And I saw the inventories and realized that the second most valuable asset on the plantation of the slaves. And every slave in the inventory would be given a number, his name or her name, how old, age, and then the job of that enslaved human being on the plantation, and then a section for comments. I then realized that there was such a thing as oral histories uh, from the slaves. And they, they 
There's some you can get that is that go back to the uh, 1400s, but the big contributor there was the Works Progress Administration from about 1929 to 32, and uh, people went out into the fields to interview ex-slaves, and we we own I think about 2,400 of those oral histories, and I started to read them, and I'll never forget. I had to put the book down because it's uh, I cried. It should surprise no one that a rich white boy is in this endeavor because you have to remember there was a whole lot of rich white boys who started this. Now, what in the hell do you do with that if you have the same skin that you and I have? What do you do with that? You grieve. You know there's something that you should do. You feel the responsibility. And indeed, you have a responsibility with that. I could no longer be a pedestrian. I could not. I looked at it and checked on, on education. It was, we were never educated on any of this. And my, my commitment to the memory of all of those people was that I would get those facts. And as best we could, we would bring those to the attention of everybody we could find. Now, we know we can't rewrite history. But we can right some of the wrongs of history, especially in education. John Cummings, owner of the Whitney Plantation and Slavery Museum. The Whitney Plantation is one of three surviving Civil War-era sugar plantations located in St. John the Baptist Parish, about an hour's drive from New Orleans along the Mississippi River. The Louisiana Eats crew arrived on an overcast, windy morning and were greeted by Professor Ibrahim Asek, who would serve as our personal tour guide. My name is Ibrahim Asek. To make it easier for you, you can call me Dr. Sek. I'm the director of research here since 2000. Dr. Sek led us outside to a golf cart that would provide transportation around the plantation's grounds. Our first stop was a restored 19th century structure donated by the Antioch Baptist Church congregation in 2001. It had been moved from its original site in Paulina, Louisiana. As I entered the church, I was immediately struck by the arresting and lifelike statues of children, 40 in all, barely tall enough to see over the tops of the pews. So these are the children of Whitney. They represent the people who were enslaved all over the South and who were interviewed in the 1930s by the Federal Writers Project. And it is, it is, it is just amazing and heartbreaking to see that these wonderful children, they had some dreams. Every child is a dreamer. Every human being is a dreamer, especially when you are young, growing up. You know, you think about them having to drop those dreams, living in the big house with the children of the master. And you may think you belong to that big house. And at what time in your life they let you know that you are nothing but a slave, and you have to grow up learning to be a slave and serving the little masters who later will become the big, become the big master. That's your fate. Are there any of the children 
that you see their statues all the time who speak to you specially? Of course, every child around will speak to me. The person who came with the idea is a specialist of uh, psychology. And he told Cummings, if you really want to reach everybody on this planet, tell the story of slavery through children. Because it is a universal tendency to really listen to children. When we all stand here, black, white, Chinese, or whatever, whenever you hear a child crying, everybody, you know, turns his head or her head to see. That's why we decided to do it. Not far from the church, Dr. Sek took us to a large monument comprised of gray granite slabs engraved with names and information about the Haydel Plantation's enslaved peoples. What is this monument, Dr. Sack? This Beck? monument is dedicated to all the people who were enslaved on the Heidel Plantation. We call it the Wall of Honor. Here we honor the memories of all the people who were enslaved here only. And these names are not fake. We found them in inventories done throughout the 18th century and into the 19th century before the Civil War. On this side of the wall, let's say the right side from you, we have uh, mostly people born in the 18th century, and most of them came from Africa. And this side of the wall, the oldest side of the wall, I call it uh, the indigo generation. And uh, let me tell you, indigo is a dye, it's a blue dye. And once they extract that indigo from the plant, they export it to Europe, where they made those cloth fabrics that were also used in the African uh, slave trade along the coast of Africa. But it was very dangerous to produce indigo, wasn't it? The life expectancy of someone who was an indigo maker because of the chemicals they use was like seven years. We don't have really a scientific study that can confirm that. But we have some testimonies from people who were enslaved on this plantation and who said it was a very dangerous kind of process. And it became even more dangerous for the people who went on this plantation when sugar became the main uh, product on these plantations. And that happened late in the uh, 18th century and well into the 19th century. And that's why on the other side of the wall, we have people born mostly in America. Many of them came from the East Coast because it was against the law to import slaves from Africa. And uh, I call it the sugar generation. Why was sugar more dangerous than even indigo? Sugar was, uh, let's say, very demanding in terms of labor. Cooking the sugar was a very dangerous process. It was cooked on a series of four kettles on fire. And they had to leave the burning liquids from uh, kettle to kettle with long ladles. Sometimes you would have accidents, you know, people burning to death. It is not surprising that uh, in 1811, the largest slave revolt ever in the United States, in the south of the United States, happened here in St. James Parish, between here and New Orleans, when hundreds of slaves decided to go down and capture the city of New Orleans. They had rifles. Some of them had only their tools or sticks. 
And of course, it was a bloodbath. There were many were killed in the action. Some were taken to a special court, condemned to death. They were shot in front of the plantations where they belong, and they were beheaded, and their heads posted on poles. Slavery in, in Louisiana in 19th century was really harder. It is harsher on the people who lived around here. Mm. When we return from a short break, our tour of Whitney Plantation continues. Stay tuned. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. Our 2016 visit to the Whitney Plantation Museum continues with Professor Ibrahima Sek. For our next stop, Dr. Sek drove us over to a memorial dedicated to all the enslaved people who lived in Louisiana. So this is what we call the, the Gwondly Midlow Hall Alleys, Les Alleys Gwondly Midlow Hall. Like I told you, Gwondly Midlow Hall played a very important role in the study of Africans in colonial Louisiana. And she also built a database, the Louisiana Slave Database, and she has like 107,000 entries. What we did is pretty simple. We downloaded the names from the database, and then we gave it to the technician who engraved them on granite slabs. On every slab you have two quotes from uh, the former slaves and one picture related to slavery. 18 walls, on each wall we have 12 slabs, 216 slabs, 107,000 names. And this memorial here is just the half of what we want to do here. She stopped the database in 1820. We plan to extend it to 1865. And we'll have thousands and thousands of names which we will put on uh, walls on the other side of this field here. When you look at these and read these, is there one in particular that stands out to you that just mm that disturbs you tremendously? Like this one here? Yes. You can, you can read I it. Can you read you it. have better English than yeah. me. It says, I was sold from my ma. All my brothers and sisters was sold. The man that brought me said he was going to bring us where the money grew on trees. And you know what that was? Picking moss. That man kept me until peace was declared. Martha, Adeline, Annie, Carlina, Tilda are the sisters I remember. I just sit here and wonder sometimes what become of them. 
Let me show you something else. Nobody in the world ever got a chance to know as much misery as a slave that had escaped and been caught. Whoever said this, you know, was a former slave. And uh, if you read the slave code established by the French, it is said in that code, Article 32, if a slave run away and is captured for the first time, like after 30 days of being absent, the punishment would be being branded on one shoulder with the fleur de lis and the ears would be cut. They cut the ears so it becomes your identity. And whoever see you around, they would know that uh, you are a negro maron, you are used to run away. You run away a second time, they brand you on the other shoulder with the fleur de lis and then they cut your hamstring. If you know what a hamstring is, and imagine someone putting a knife to that hamstring, that was really something. The third time, it was the death penalty. Period. From there, we moved to a section of the memorial featuring a bronze sculpture of an angel carrying an enslaved child destined for heaven. This is Whitney Plantation's Field of Angels. We call it the Field of Angels because this is a, a memorial where we honor the memories of uh, children who died in slavery. Like I told you, children are a very important part of the way we tell the story of slavery here at Whitney. And here we have uh, like 2,200 names of children who died in this parish in a period of 40 years from 1823 to 1863. And uh, among those children who died here, 40 died on this plantation. And I'm sure that all the children who died in this parish are not uh, documented by the Catholic Church. Many of them died naturally from diseases like yellow fever, cholera, malaria. Some uh, died accidentally. Many drowned. Some of them died of burns. Some of them were hit by lightning in the field because children work. It was officially written in the Civil Code of Louisiana that once you reach the age of 10, they can sell you anytime they want it. 10 years old is still, still little, you know. That's why I hate to bring here my son who is just 10 years old. I, I hate to bring him here. And sometimes if I have a, a group of visitors, they have children, I would ask what is the age of that child. And I would ask the mother or the, or the father, can you imagine you being enslaved here on this plantation, and someone come and take that child from you, that make them think. We have some quotes over here. One of them said, he was put to the plow at age eight. He was just eight years old when he was, he was put uh, you know, to the plow. They just had breaking.
Next, Whitney Plantation Slave Quarters. So here we are in a slave cabin. They had 22 slave cabins on the Heidel Plantations, 20 for the field hands and two for the domestic slaves near the big house. And the question I always get is how many people lived on a cabin like this? My usual answer is just to tell them to do the math. At the peak of this uh, plantation, they had, uh, like I said, 22 slave cabins and somewhere near 200 slaves. And do the math, it will take you somewhere between seven and eight and maybe more for each cabin. I have read some testimonies, a lady who said she lived with her mother and five siblings, one room, one bed. It was horrible during the summer, but they were comfortable during the winter because of that body, body heat. And at night, it could be very noisy around here. They leave early in the morning before daybreak, and they come back when the sun goes down. That's why they say they worked from Kensi to Kensi. Once you come back, you have to wash your body. Or maybe you have to also think about food. Because you have to leave this cabin early in the morning, you have, to have, you have breakfast into the field. You have to cook your breakfast at night before you go to bed. And also cook your dinner. So they have a fireplace. But usually these people mostly cooked outside. Around these cabins, they had also little gardens. What would a typical dinner and breakfast be that they're preparing in an evening? Things like grits, corn, because they were given also some, a certain amount of meat every, every week. And maybe they would improve it with uh, the kind of crops they got from Africa, like black-eyed peas, okra, things like that. From the slave quarters, we headed to the plantation kitchen. Built in the late 18th century, it stands as the oldest detached kitchen in Louisiana. So here we are in the kitchen. This kitchen was built at the same time as the big house in the late 18th century, around 1790. On every inventory of this plantation, you find female slaves serving as cooks. Usually it is a head cook, a lady, and a younger female serving as an assistant. And I imagine that uh, these ladies would use recipes from African cooking tradition, from African foodways, European foodways, and of course, indigenous people foodways. And I think it was through that uh, mixture of different foodways that was born the Creole foodways. And it is not uh, surprising that uh, the cuisine of Louisiana is so rich because it borrows to many traditions. And of course, among those traditions, we cannot ignore the contribution of African foodways. This is a mortar and a pestle. The people who were deported from Africa were put in those boats almost naked. But you know, you don't need a, a suitcase to pack your culture. Once they made it over here, if you take the example of rice, 
they were put in the field to produce rice. They did it because they knew how to do it. But also, they reproduced the tools they use in Africa to process rice, like the mortar and the pestle. And that's how these tools also survived over here. It's about material culture. And this is the main tool they use here in Louisiana until the early 20th century. You can see it uh, in pictures. There's a, a famous picture of a Cajun lady in 1904 in Crowley, Louisiana, grinding rice, uh, processing rice before a mortar and a pestle. This is also an African legacy, material culture. Mm -hmm. For our final stop in the tour, Dr. Sek took us to the big house. Ambrose Heidel came from uh, Germany in 1721. He came here with the French Company of the West Indies, and he's the one who bought this plantation in 1752. It was an indigo plantation, and uh, after he died, Jean-Jacques Heidel became the owner of the plantation, and uh, he's the one who transitioned the plantation from uh, indigo to sugar. This uh, Heidel plantation is really important in the history of slavery of Louisiana. Because if you look at the history of slavery over here and also the evolution of the material culture, the building and all of that, it gives you a very accurate reading of the evolution of a plantation along this river road. And uh, most of the outbuildings, the big house, are very well preserved. And I think uh, for that, uh, it makes this place really special. We are thankful, we are lucky to have these structures, but our focus is not about the structures. It's about the people who built these structures, the people who worked into these structures and around these structures, you see. We are in the big house. The big house was the domain of the, the domestic slaves. We talked about the, the, the cooks in that kitchen, we have also people who were, who were weavers to make cloth, uh, spinners to make the thread, if you make the cloth, seamstresses, because they made clothing over here. All the clothes of the, of the, of the slaves probably were made here. They have people who did the laundry, wash clothes and iron. These people cleaned the house they did also some gardening around the big house for the master. They raised poultry, they raised pigeons. You have two pigeoners outside here. And squab was a delicacy on this place. So uh, that's uh, a deliberate choice. And I, we think it is the right choice to focus on the lives of the people who made these people wealthy and comfortable. And uh, slavery was a very comfortable institution for the people who dominated the society, for the slave owners. And that's why we understand why they decided to fight a long war in order to keep the institution of slavery. But, uh, you know, I think we are doing the right thing, telling the story of slavery. Professor Ibrahim Asek at the Whitney Plantation in 2016. What is the true story of the history of okra in North America? 
Stay tuned, and we'll solve that mystery when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes, available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, Stay, play, and get away on the Louisiana North Shore this spring. The North Shore is brimming with welcoming patios, boasting waterfront views, and decadent dishes. Indulge in fresh Louisiana seafood, locally grown produce, homemade sweet treats, and ice-cold brews. You're invited to feed your soul along the Tammany Taste Culinary Trail just 40 miles north of New Orleans' French Quarter and a world away. Plan your St. Tammany visit at louisiananorthshore.com. Here is this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Culinary Institute. What is the true story of okra's history in North America? Over the years, I've often heard the tale of how African slaves were responsible for bringing okra to America. It's said that they smuggled in the seeds of the okra plant hidden in their hair or ears. Not only is this theory ridiculous, it insults the very people who suffered the outrage of slavery. In fact, it was the slave traders who recognized okra as cheap fodder for the enslaved peoples, and they're the ones responsible for the importation of the plant, indigenous to Ethiopia. Once here, it was the black hand who stirred the pots, who shared this delicious vegetable, which was known as kingumbo in the native Bantu tongue. Many believe kingumbo to be the source of the name of Louisiana's famed soup, gumbo. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. our in-depth tour of the plantation, I had some lingering questions about the Haydell family lineage. Based on John Cummings' knowledge of the plantation and his friendship with one of the Haydell's notable descendants, Sybil Haydell Morial, we asked John to explain the Haydell-Haydell's family connection to Whitney Plantation. Her ancestor is a slave woman by the name of Anna. Anna came from the East Coast, we think, from Philadelphia. And she was a gift to Ozalie Haydell, who was the mistress of the house. And Ozalie had no children. She had a brother named Antoine who lived with her. And Marcelin Haydell died in 1839, her husband. So her brother impregnated Anna, and the child... Was Victor Haydell. 
And he married Beatrice, and they had children. And from that union, every black Haydell followed. To hear this remarkable story in Mrs. Morial's own words, we invited her to sit down with us in our Louisiana Eats studio. Apart from her lifelong work as an educator and an activist, Sybil also served as First Lady of New Orleans as wife of the city's first African-American mayor, Ernest N. Morial. Sybil chronicled her breadth of experience during the civil rights era and the years that followed in her memoir, Witness to Change. As our conversation began, I asked Sybil what she knew about her family's lineage before the Whitney Plantation Museum opened. I had no knowledge of before my grandfather, who was Clay. I knew that his father was Pepea, but I did not know that he was a slave. His name was Victor, and he was the son of an African slave that worked in the house and a member of the Heidel family, the owners of the plantation. He was the only child uh, of that union. And some years ago, in 2009, my Heidel side of the family had a, a reunion. There were about 264 of us. And one of my cousins had researched our ancestry. And that's when I learned much about it, but never the slave part. We didn't talk about that. The, the older people, my elder cousins and grandparents, never talked about the slave generation. But then when John Cummings bought the plantation and had a historian who authenticated all of it, then we really knew we could trace it all the way back to Germany and Africa. That's incredible. How did you feel once you learned this incredible tie to your past and the horror of slavery? We did not, um, I don't know, maybe we knew not to step into it. But had we thought about the years that my grandfather and great-grandfather lived, we would have put it together. But maybe unintentionally, we didn't want to know. We didn't want to know the real facts of our slave background. And so this plantation that John Cummings has made a slave museum and that has been thoroughly researched by Dr. Seck gave it all. I mean, we even have the, the copy of my slave great-grandfather's baptismal certificate, which lists Anna, who was the African slave, and Antoine, who was the German. And, and we learned that all of my family were owned by the Germans, and there was a price on their heads. That really made me really sad. That was really hard for me to reckon with, and hard to think about the life of a slave who, it was never going to be any different. There was nothing to look forward to. It was, you're a slave, and this is where you're going to live for the rest of your life. As you describe your family in your memoir, you came from great privilege. Despite the fact that you all were living in the Jim Crow segregated South, tell us a little bit about that. My great-grandfather, the mulatto, was 28 years old when the Emancipation Proclamation became law. He was freed at 28. In 10 years, he owned property. 
he had his own little plot of land where he raised sugarcane and rice and made a living off it. Now his children, he had eight sons. My grandfather was one. They also owned land. In fact, it was the Heidel brothers together that owned land that farmed sugarcane. But my grandfather, whose name was Clay, was also part owner of a grocery store in Reserve, which is where his wife's family came from, the Orip Plantation. So my grandfather wanted his nine children to be educated. Now back then, the schools, after the Emancipation Proclamation, schools for Negroes only went up to fifth grade. They did not want them to be more educated beyond that. So my grandfather sent my father, who was the oldest of nine children, to New Orleans to finish his education, and he did, fifth grade on through high school, and then he went to Strait College, which was a black college in New Orleans. From there, he went to Howard University in Washington, D.C., couldn't attend the medical schools in the state because uh, Negroes were barred from that. So my father got a medical education and came back to New Orleans to practice and became a very successful physician and surgeon. Now the promise had to be to his parents that he would help to educate his siblings. And he did that, I know he did, because his youngest brother uh, was maybe 15 years older than my sister and me. He would come for his tuition, he went to Dillard for dad at the beginning of each semester. So he fulfilled his promise to his family. And that's how we got ahead, but from slavery to home ownership, to education, professional education, and that's where we were. We were, I guess, you know, very well off, very comfortable. But when we stepped outside our little cocoon, we had to sit behind the bus. We couldn't go to any public places. We were publicly uh, humiliated. Mm -hmm. And so our parents tried to shield us from that. The families and the friends were very close, and they provided opportunities for us. We couldn't go to the symphony, and we could go to the opera and sit way up, way up in the nosebleed because my mother loved the opera, and we went. But then they took us to Dillard that had a great theater department to plays. Dillard also had internationally famous African-Americans like Paul Robeson and, and Brown, who was the first Bess in Porgy and Bess. So we had those kinds of exposures. And then Xavier University had opera. So we got what we were barred from. But, you know, we, we still knew that we were not whole, that we could not go everywhere. One of the things that I read was that when you went to college, you went to Boston University. But I did go to Xavier for two years. Okay. I was very young, and my parents said, wait a couple of years. So I transferred as a junior and got my bachelor's degree and then my master's degree from Boston University. And tell us the story of your trip to Boston University. How oh, did you get there? That was a train ride from hell. The, the trains were segregated. Uh, African-Americans had, to, we were called Negroes then, or colored, had to sit in the baggage car. Now, we weren't looking at the baggage, but there was a big wall that separated us, so it was half of, half of a train car. We had to sit there, and that year, maybe the year before, 
because of a federal lawsuit outlawing interstate segregation on transportation. We could go in the dining room, but that was quite an experience. Number one, the conductor never told me. My father said, you can go in the dining room, but the, the conductor will announce it, the time for dinner, and you'd have, probably have to move back a few cars. Well, the conductor never came. Mm. I walked through and met the conductor. I said, where is the dining car and is dinner being served? And he reluctantly told me. Well, when I got to the dining car, I was standing up waiting to be seated, and other people were being seated, and I was accustomed to that. You know, you're last, you're just like in the stores, you, right. you're the last served. They escorted me to a table right at the kitchen, and then they pulled this curtain around it. So white people didn't have to look at us. Now, the, uh, the comforting thing was that the chefs in the kitchen and all of the waiters were African-Americans, and so they were lovely. They deferred, and I guess they said, I'm sorry, you know, have to be here, and I would have to be here too, but they took very good care of me. And then I went back to the colored car. We could not uh, rent uh, an overnight a Pullman car with, with, to sleep. So you sat up uh, for a 30-hour train ride. Mm. It, so it was, it was humiliating, but we, we, we didn't know anything else. We just knew it wasn't right. So then what was it like for you in Boston? How different was your life experience when you were that far north? Well, I had traveled a lot with my parents, my siblings. Uh, Daddy would go to national conventions, the doctor's conventions, the insurance conventions, and take us with him. So we were exposed to being able to go anywhere. But I was thrilled to be able to go to the theater and to the opera and to the Boston Pops, which was wonderful, and to the museums without any hesitation. You know, that we would be rejected or that we would be treated poorly. So I loved the freedom. And when the Supreme Court decision came down in 1954, all of us from the South, like the North, we all pledged to the very person to come back South and be a part of the change. And one of those students was Martin Luther King. He was a student at Boston University. He was at graduate school. I was in undergraduate school. And we had conversations. Oh, we're going home. We had no idea what the change would mean, what we have to do. This was a whole new challenge. And so we all came back home. And you know what Martin Luther King became? And uh, one of the students from Alabama was the first black elected to the legislature, as my husband was. So we wanted to be in the mix. We wanted to contribute. It must have been very exciting. It was. It was heady stuff, really. When you look back, how does it feel to have such a broad view of change in the world? Well, you know, I didn't really realize it until I wrote the memoir. You know, I began, after Katrina, I had my house flooded. I went to Baton Rouge where I had a daughter. She lost her house also. Mm. But while I was dealing with the tragedies, I had flood, and then I had fire. So it wiped out all of my memorabilia, photographs, and all the little things that signified events in our lives. 
So I began to think about my life and reminisce on the good things. And I would lie in bed at night and just go into detail, you know, what was the time of year. And, and the next morning I'd get up and get on a computer and put the story down. And when I had about 15 or so stories, I said, I've got a book. I want to do this for my children and grandchildren. So that really was cathartic. It healed to me while I was dealing with the tragedies, which were significant. And many of us in New Orleans really had these major, major, major uh, problems to deal with. But out of it came this memoir, and I could really take a broad look at my life, my great fortune. And you know what? The challenges enriched my life. Uh, I, I would tell my children adversity builds character, and they would look at me, you know, what do you mean? It's true. When you have to deal with these, it strengthens your character, it strengthens your reserve, it gives you the courage to deal with it and, and land on your feet. What, what's your greatest hope for the future? Well, I hope that we can face what our attitudes are, both on the black side and the white side. We have to talk about race. It is a problem. And we have to do, I think, what South Africa did. And they knew that if they did not resolve their differences, they would all be destroyed. The economy would fail. There would be violence and so forth. So they had race and reconciliation. They talked it out. They apologized on both sides for what they'd done. They gave up their guilt. They, they shook off the guilt that they had for the wrong things that they had done on both sides. And I think that's where, where we have to start now because we are slipping back and we, that shouldn't be happening. We are all created equal. And all except the slaves and the Native Americans are immigrants of this country. Mm-hmm. So we need to get it right. What do you hope that you'll be most remembered for? What's the legacy that you hope that you leave for the future? I think really it's my children, that they have a sense of commitment to make this a, a more humane society, both in their professional and their personal lives. But I think that my story will make people aware of the gains that we've made, of the things that can threaten all of us. And I just think a first story written is much easier to grasp than a historical report. Of course, we have the history. And in some of um, the things that I said in my memoir, even though it's in my memory, I went to the archives to be sure I had dates right. But it's much easier reading someone's story or hearing someone's oral history because it it gets to you. You know, it's real. This is a human being's story. Educator and community leader, Sybil Heidel-Morial. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting 
along with recipes and videos, too. And if you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. And if you've been dying to experience a real drag brunch, Poppy's pop-up style, please join me and a bevy of beauties at Tujac's Restaurant on Sunday, June 27th. To make reservations, call the restaurant at 504-525-8676. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, Rouse's Markets, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods and wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris and to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.